0: Accutron Watches present From New York City, this is the Accutron Show A time travel through American culture With your hosts, Bill McCuddy, Scott Alexander, and David Graver Visit AccutronWatch.com And discover the brand that has made American history With an all-new, proprietary, next-generation electrostatic energy movement Accutron it's not a time piece. It's a conversation piece.
1: The, the problem with it has been that the director has become a kind of uh, unimportant figure who's brought in and had his ass kicked by a bunch of actors who've been on this thing for years or whatever and the writers who control the, the set. And, um, and so it, the language becomes the, the most important part of the storytelling as opposed to the image.
2: The person you heard at the top of the show is today's guest, award winning actor and producer Alessandro Nivola. But first up, me, Bill McCuddy, along with David Graver and Scott Alexander, talking about the future of movies with a guy who's made a ton of them. All today on the Accutron show, right after this.
0: This podcast is presented by Accutron Watches. Visit our website, accutronwatch.com, and discover our iconic Space View 2020 collection, recreating the stunning visual impact of the original open dial design combined with an all new electrostatic energy movement. Time just changed again. The Accutron Space View 2020.
2: You know what's interesting about today's guest is that I told my wife who was going to be on and she said who and then I showed her a picture and she goes, "Oh, that right. guy." That guy's been in the thousand That guy's been scene. in everything. Yep. And he's been great in everything. And he really has been great in everything. Uh he was most recently in the Many Saints of Newark which We'll ask him about, but I think they kind of screwed up. Let's I mean, go ahead and say he starred in it. He, well, he stole it, actually. Stole I mean, it. I'm going to probably fanboy crush on him in that way because I thought he was the <laughs> whole thing. And the way they marketed that movie was, hey, look was at this kid, kid who looks yeah. just like Tony Soprano when he was younger. And that origin story didn't play out as well, but he was tremendous. But he's also done,
3: he's done so much stuff. He's done theater. He's done movies. He's done TV. He, you know, He's been all over the place. This just, is a good get. In oh, talk he's a show get. podcast. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We're very excited. No, no, I We're feel it, like, but I feel like it's interesting. I'm curious to get his take on where this stuff is going, especially like going back to theaters and not just movie theaters. Like, just he's done that much theater. Like, I've seen a couple productions in the last couple months on Broadway, and it feels like people are just hungry. To get out there, like right. I saw David Burns' American Utopia, Sam, you saw were, last week. They were giddy.
2: Yeah,
3: people. I mean, they're just like, oh, <laughs> well, that's we're all together again. That's that. It, yeah, but, it inspires
2: that, and David Burns. Yeah, Byrne, I also like, saw
3: Hades Town, and it was like it's all it's all happening again, and people are there
2: for it. That's nice, he had an auspicious not a, he had a very early Broadway debut with the great Helen Mirren, so he oh, will yeah, talk, yeah, yeah. we'll ask him about that. And uh, we'll also talk about long format television versus movies and whether or not that's the future or which he prefers. Is he a method guy? Is he active on the set, or is he that guy that retreats to uh, a corner? Maybe
4: uh, favorite collaborators as well. He's worked with everyone,
2: yeah. Yeah, who's he Who's he enjoyed working with and what's he got coming up next? I'm told uh, a very uh, – well, I, I won't – I'll tease only to say it's a big project. He also has d- just wrapped a movie with one of my absolute favorite directors of all time, David O. Russell – uh, who can be a handful also. So we, we wouldn't have find, it any other way. No, we did, and we're a handful. So we enjoy but that. But
3: this is the thing. The movies uh, that, that really get you excited are the ones that are a handful, the ones that are messy, the ones that are rangy, the ones that, that, that take you outside your comfort zone. That's, and that's, so is there to the too much where, political
2: correctness in all the movies that we're seeing? And were the what were the movies that influenced him maybe back in the 60s and the actors? Uh, all on a little thing we call the Accutron Show. And we will be right back with Alessandro Nivola
0: after this. This podcast is presented by Accutron Watches. Visit our website, accutronwatch.com, and discover our Accutron DNA collection. Reimagined for a new generation, the Accutron DNA combines breakthrough technology, precise engineering, and modern aesthetics to achieve a new level of technical excellence. The Accutron DNA, the new face of time for those who blaze new trails.
2: Alexander, welcome to the Accutron Show. Uh, we are thrilled to have you. And uh, I, by the way, what's the what's what's the guilty pleasure for you during the pandemic that you've been hooked on? What have you been watching more than anything else?
1: Oh God, you know I'm so lame. I don't watch anything. I really don't. I I, I ever since I had kids, I just stopped watching stuff. I watched like I saw this documentary about those Thai soccer player kids. Have you seen that?
2: Yeah. It's yeah.
1: unbelievable.
2: Yeah, that's it's the like, same about, filmmaker that did uh Maru and uh Yeah, that yeah, that
1: it, exactly. But it's about these it's really about these English guys who are like basically characters out of the office. You know, they're <laughs> like these IT guys who uh <laughs> who like live in northern England or whatever and they they just happen to be like the greatest cave divers in the world. Right. And then, you know, they're like, you know, guys, and they talk like that and they say, um, you know, I, I'm not a very emotional person. And uh, I didn't think that there was uh, something that would uh, suit my uh, temperament very much until I discovered cave diving. <laughs> and, uh, and like, It's the fact that they just like are completely cut off from their emotional life that allows them to be just brilliant at like being in these perilous situations and, and, uh, and rescuing these, these kids. And then, of course, this was like the one time it kind of like like made them shed a tear and they were completely confused about wow. That's deal. called The
2: Rescue and it's a Nat Geo doc. And I'm, I'm stunned that it didn't get uh, some Oscar attention. You know, one of the things I love with the voice you just did is that whenever I see you interviewed, if you tell a story about Nicolas Cage or you're kind of like Alec Baldwin, no one talks about the great voices that they can do, but you can do almost everybody. I heard you do Cage on uh, on Colbert the other night. Was- oh yeah.
1: Well, I you know I, I grew up. My dad was a great uh, did impressions a lot, and I think that was kind of how I started. I don't know. That was kind of how I started being a performer. Was uh, you know I was inspired by that. I used to see him at the dinner table at parties and stuff, and he would entertain people by doing impressions of friends of the family or you know politicians or whatever and and uh, so my first kind of association with getting attention from from some kind of performing was imitation doing imitations of people's voices and and uh, mannerisms and stuff and so that really was uh, ended up carrying through my whole career as an actor was was uh, having a, a real fascination with the way that people spoke and and physical attributes and but particularly the voice like i and i i really think that that voice is a kind of um is so revealing about character in so many different ways and it affects everything about you as soon as you um start to uh tap into the detail and and nuances of that so yeah I, I, it's not by accident it's something that i I'm really fascinated by, and, and I often start work on characters that way. Also, you
3: know, you are technically a British citizen now, right? That helps with the accent.
1: Yeah. I, well, I, yeah, I actually have two passports. I'm about to get my third. I, I'm, I'm, I'm getting the Italian one. Now that Brexit happened, the, the, the English one's useless. <laughs> right? Yeah. You got
2: cut <laughs> off. We should explain that in 2003, you married the lovely Emily Mortimer, Uh, a British actress. She became a U.S. citizen when you guys got married and you became a British citizen. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Um, Was that for lousy tax reasons? (laughs) 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 Um,
1: Well, no, I think that um, in her case, really, I mean, we we were going to make our life living in America. And so um, there were there were all kinds of reasons. I think, I think initially she, yeah, there were there were questions about what would happen if one of us died or something, how it was going to affect what we were to pass on to our kids. I mean, and then, and then she went through the whole process of becoming a citizen. And, and I, she, she came back sort of in tears after the the induction ceremony um, because there was some Irish um judge who had um you know conducted the ceremony with her and like a room full of hundreds of immigrants and he was saying you know that he had been that he had uh emigrated to the states and and uh you know what a a a meaningful experience it had been for him and you know what the long journey had been for him to come to america and how you know that the whole essence of this country was inviting people like the ones in this room uh you know into the country to to become americans and and i don't know she just was she really got uh emotional about it and i can understand i on the other hand my ceremony was um in a a similar room maybe a smaller one and there was a I remember there was a, a, this this uh, the the person who presided over the, it there was a, a this woman with little you know white gloves and I remember her saying crumpets. you know you've all come a very long way <laughs> and I assume she meant <laughs> to civilization <laughs> um, but I'm very proud of that as well England has just been a huge part of my life and I, it wasn't something that I had planned but um early on in my career i michael winterbottom who's an english director uh had me come over and and play uh a fisherman from hastings who'd been in prison for eight years at in brixton prison in london and it was this movie uh that i played opposite rachel weiss and and i had never really been to england much before and suddenly there I was and I started getting offered all this work over there and it's ended up becoming kind of half my career has been spent there. And, and uh, I've become kind of bilingual as a, as a, a Brit. <laughs> but and, that Rachel
2: Vice film was one of the 12 in your category, in your sort of IMDB profile that never got released. Is that right? Oh yeah.
1: That, that on the Colbert show, he was asking me about that. Yeah. He was saying like what's going on here? Half your movies don't come out. And uh yeah, that was different. That was one of them, but it but it uh it was a catalyst for a lot of other uh, great things that had that happened in that country for Well, me.
2: if it makes you more comfortable, we're pretty sure this podcast is going to get broadcast.
1: <laughs> yeah. Don't speak too soon. You shouldn't have had me on here. I saw you don't know what you're dealing with.
4: I saw a recent tweet of yours where um you made a comment about an actor going onto a late-night program to promote a Super Bowl commercial, correct? Yeah. Yeah, this is what it's come to. (laughs) Do you think the role of an actor has changed now that there's this ravenous hunger in social media, that this need for actors' attention 24 hours a day?
1: I don't know that it's a need for actors' attention that has resulted in actors promoting commercials. Uh, I think it's more just the fact that um, you know, the entertainment world has just been completely co-opted by major corporations. and um so everything is uh, you know, every you know all of the what they call content now, which is just like such a gross word anyway, but uh is um generated by by big corporations. and um, it's just completely changed the the landscape of of movies and television. I mean, can you imagine like back in the day when Raging Bull was coming out? I mean, De Niro wouldn't even like be caught dead going on a talk show at all, even to talk about like one of the greatest films ever made. And, and now, uh, you know, you go on to say like you got to be, uh, you know, you got to watch the commercial that's advertising the product and uh it's weird i it's Agreed, totally very, it's, it's depressing it's, it's
3: strange to have the content portion be pointing that directly towards the ads it's very it's like it's supposed to be the other way around but
1: i mean i understand you know look the, the the reality of it is like these these commercials are now they're very artfully made they're often made by like auteur directors and for you know some of these actors being in them is is a kind of stamp of approval or whatever and um and uh you know the the real the, the fact of the matter is that there's nothing in in entertainment anymore that commands the attention of the entire country the way that it used to when there were four channels on TV and uh there were certain events that everybody tuned into and the only remaining thing uh which i'm sure probably has lower ratings now than it ever did but is is the super bowl and so it's like one of the few uh you know i mean the oscars sure don't do it but uh even something like one of the few things that commands the attention of you know the entire population and all different demographics Uh, you know everything else now in the streaming world and and in TV is, is tailored toward a a very narrow niche demographic because uh, there's nothing that, that uh, can command those kinds of audiences anymore. So they tried inside of diversify their portfolios of, of um, entertainment content to work, to focus on specific groups of people.
3: Yeah. I mean, even, even something like a space launch, you know, we this is the Accutron show. We have an association with the the uh, space program and NASA and all these things. And yeah. you think about the moon landing and being this moment where the entire country is unified in this. Yeah. Everyone watched that who was around at that time. And um, I don't, you know, even now we go into space and people are like, mm. yeah, I went to space.
1: Well, that's because like yeah. Richard Branson. Are they tweeting? Every week right.
3: or whatever. Again, you're right. <laughs> Commerce invades that, that, that too. Anymore.
2: Right. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, we've talked about that Billionaire's Boys Club. You know, uh, back to the content question, 115 million people watched the last MASH episode. And I think maybe 2 million people were watching Colbert on any given night the other night. I mean, the, the the, the narrow casting that used to be broadcasting is remarkable. And one of the things we wanted to talk to you about is pivoting from acting to producing. What do you think the future is for streaming versus going into actually seeing something in a movie theater?
1: Uh, Well, it's really hard to know. I mean, obviously, some people think that the pandemic uh, hastened the move away from like a communal uh, experience watching movies and everything and into uh, everybody just watching stuff in their living rooms. Uh, I mean, I don't think necessarily that that's true. I think it was a little bit of a... I mean, obviously, people weren't going to go to the movie theater when you thought you could get sick and die. So, um, it's I mean, it's a really good movie.
2: The, I don't right. know if
3: it's worth. The, that's
2: why know. the Bond film was called No Time to Die.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, mind you, like the Marvel thing, like they still they still packed them in. I, I but that's I think right. because the people who go to see those movies are, are younger and not not they weren't afraid of the virus and uh, any movies that were. Um, designed to at least invite a an older audience as well um, really didn't stand a chance. I, I think that it'll come back. I, I do think that it's undeniable that that um, the uh, fact of, of people watching content in their own homes is gonna be, is it, just becoming um, the new normal, and there's no way around that. Um, there are upsides and downsides to it. Like everything that there are, you know, indie movies, art house films and, and things that, that wouldn't normally get much of an audience in a, in a cinema that can reach more people because of being um, in that format. I, to me, I, I I'm not, I, of course, like I, I, I think that there's something wonderful and magical about watching a movie in a movie theater. This, especially if it's one that has a big screen. I mean, when some of these theaters are so tiny that there's no difference between watching it on your television and watching it in the cinema. But, but to me, the the bigger question is not so much um, the format that you're watching, you know, where you're watching it, but what the, uh, you know, how these things are made and the big difference to me between television and, and movies is that movies have traditionally been, um, uh, had, had the, the focus be on visual storytelling and, um, the best movies were always movies that were, that, that had a great director and the director was the person that was telling the story and enlisting in, in the help of all these other creative people in order to do that. Whereas television is a medium that's really, um, controlled by writers. And, um, the, the problem with it has been that the director has become a kind of, uh, unimportant figure who's brought in and had his ass kicked by a bunch of actors who've been on this thing for years or whatever, and the writers who control the, the set. And, um, and so it, the language becomes the, the most important part of the storytelling as opposed to the image. And I personally, obviously, there there's a million ways to to make a movie and tell a story, and there are there are some great movies that are that are very talky, and the hope is that as you know, streaming and and television evolve, that the format becomes uh, it, that it becomes possible for directors to work in that medium in a way where they are once again the primary. Um, focus of the of the the um,
2: set. I've always wanted to direct. I'm going to yell cut at this moment because we're going to take a break. When we come back, the uh, portfolio of this guy is so incredible. And I want to ask him about some of the films, some of the people he's worked with, as we all do. And we're going to have a, a deeper dive into what the future of entertainment looks like, uh, are we all going to have our own movie just like we've had our own talk show or podcast in this uh, in this generation? We will find out uh, with
0: our guest after this on the Accutron Show. Don't go away. This podcast is presented by Accutron Watches. Visit our website, accutronwatch.com and discover our Legacy Collection. Reviving some of the most memorable Accutron Watches from the 60s and 70s, the Legacy Collection combines timeless design with the technical excellence of swiss watchmaking each limited to 600 individually numbered pieces the accutron legacy collection inspired by the past built for the future
2: we're back with Alessandro Nivola. We're talking about everything entertainment because he's been in everything. He's been in uh, – he's acted with some of the greatest names and has a couple of projects coming out that uh, we'll get to, one of, with, one of which is with David O. Russell, who I love. That's in the can. Yeah. Was that shot at all during pan- the pandemic? Yeah, that was – that was. Uh,
1: you know, I've, I've made about five movies during the pandemic, and that was the one that was at the most kind of like – risky moment it was in January and February of 2021 when like there was that second huge spike nobody had been vaccinated yet and uh Los Angeles was like a ghost town um and of all the movies I've been on it was the most um intensely monitored in terms of all the like uh safety protocols and stuff and um, so we really like had masks on until the last second before the camera was rolling. And then we whipped them off and shove them in our pockets and um, get on with the scenes. But um, uh, yeah, but it didn't, uh, you know, the funny thing about the filming and COVID is that I have always been on, on movie sets. I, I, I haven't really liked to, to sit around and and chit chat that much, it it really saps my energy and concentration. And so I, I tend to kind of either go off on my own in some corner of the set or uh, back to my trailer, the second that they call cut. And I've always felt like it was anti, you know, people felt like it was anti-social and and that I was sort of, you know, not a, you know, that I don't know, that I wasn't a very nice guy or whatever. And, and, and when this stuff all came along, it just completely disguised the fact that I was always <laughs> running away from those encounters. Finally you're normal. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, like this, you know, everybody dispersed the second they called cut and, and, you know i didn't have to talk to anybody really because i was <laughs> hidden behind this mask and so it's been a kind of great disguise uh for me and and i'm almost uh from from that one point of view uh for that one reason sort of uh dreading the return of normalcy on you, on movie sets you, uh
3: you've done a lot of theater work in addition to the film work is that correct i have
1: yeah yeah i really start you know i had a very old fashioned uh, beginning to my career where I started in theater, sweeping floors and summer stock and making sets and, and then regional theater plays and all that crap until until I was in New York right out of college and I, I, I got to play on Broadway. And that kind of, really, the, my f- career shifted to, to to movies at that point. But I've come back quite a, I mean, I've been on Broadway four or five times now. Wow. Um, and I've, that first time you know, with Helen Mirren. Exactly. Yeah, that was it's the kind of coming out if of the there game. was a breakthrough role, I mean, I've never really had a, a breakthrough role. Like I don't have a career defining role, uh, which has been a blessing and a curse to me. Uh, I, there's a huge variety to, to my career and um, but nothing that, uh, you know, if you were to say my name, everybody would point to. See, but that's good, was- though.
2: That's great. Don't you think? I mean, you were telling the story the other night about Nick Cage telling you you had to decide who you are. And I thought, absolutely not. This guy's a chameleon. If I read people the list of movies you're in, and I think you would be complimented by this, they would say he is, he was, wait, was he that guy or this guy? And that to me seems like the greatest thing you can say i remember morgan freeman telling me one time and then i'll shut up with all these name dropping yeah. questions no, I'll is, that, that, up for you, is, is <laughs> that he hated when someone said i wrote this with you in mind because it meant they didn't think he could act like anything else <laughs> right <laughs> yeah.
3: what, what would you consider your biggest stretch as a role
1: uh... i don't know maybe disobedience where i played a uh, rabbi from north london a hasidic rabbi from north london slightly different um that was one um i don't know i mean i yeah i i take your point i i i've like i've i often see some of these roles as like a challenge to to convince the people who are actually from that particular uh community or culture or or world or milieu that, uh, you know, that I could, that I could um, fool them. There was this great show on in England years ago. I don't know if they ever had it here called Faking It, where um, you were... That's every show here. Here. <laughs> at least in reality.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, they'd take like, uh, let's say, uh, you know, uh, a classical violinist or something and say like, okay, um, you have two weeks to become a club DJ. And you're going to train with like a, a, you know, a bunch of real DJs and you're going to learn the whole thing. And then they're going to like, you're going to go in and do it in this club setting or whatever. And people, real people are going to, you know, other DJs or whatever are going to, and they're going to be three people. One of them's you and two of them are the real thing. And they're going to determine whether they could identify if it was you, if you're the faker or not. And it's an am- it was an amazing show. It was just like what it's like being an actor and uh, that you have this sort of finite period of time to uh, just try and convince everybody else, but also yourself that you that you are who you
2: that's exactly how the three of us got this podcast. So just coincidentally, <laughs> and we're still here. Thank God. <laughs> uh, I mentioned earlier Laurel Canyon, which uh, t- tell people who's in that, because it's just amazing to me and remind well, me. Laurel Canyon,
1: yeah. It was directed by uh, Lisa Cholodenko who did the kids are all right. And I think she did. She do like Mildred Pierce. And uh, anyway, great director Francis McDormand uh, you know, it was about a, it was about Frances McDormand who was a record producer and she was having an affair with this uh English rock musician who I was playing with and her son was Christian Bale who was like a sort of uptight uh you know Harvard student or something who comes back to his mother's like crazy bohemian life <laughs> and she's there like you know <laughs> with this with this like British rocker like living in their house and they all move in together and he's and his uh, girlfriend, it was Kate Beckinsale. And uh, Natasha McElhone was the- oh, Yeah, yeah the, it's, it's a crazy, crazy great. And you sing
2: story. in that a little too, don't you? Yeah,
1: yeah. I, I, I was, um, you know, they paired me up with this great record producer who, who had produced a lot of the No Doubt uh, songs, like some of those big No Doubt hits. And he uh and there was this band sparkle horse that was sadly mark linkus who who was the the um front man of that band uh committed suicide shortly after the filming we filmed that movie i mean you got to dip into the life of
3: a mobster just recently uh, was, was that a similar thrill or was that maybe a little upsetting i don't know
1: oh no i mean it was uh, that, it was incredible i it, uh-huh. that was to date like my my biggest role really, I guess.
2: I mean, we're talking Newark. about the many saints of Newark for, yeah, um, the Sopranos prequel, the many saints of Newark, um, Incredible, incredible, incredible up to that thing. And, uh, you know, how, what was, what was that like? Cause all we were seeing was young Gandolfini in the trailer. And then, and this is not a fanboy suck up comment to you. You come and blow that thing away. I mean, that's amazing. your movie. And, and. Well, you, I, I mean, I, I thank you. I, uh, um, Uh, it it wasn't like,
1: if you'd read the script, it wasn't a surprise that, um, you know, my performance was front and center in the movie. I, the movie's about my character. And uh, I think Warner Brothers got a little bit twisted up trying to figure out how to market it. And they were so determined to tie it into the series. I mean, I I think David Chase really, he really wanted to tell a, a completely new story. And and um, the, the connection to the series was, uh, you know, allowed it to be this kind of Trojan horse where the studios aren't making those kinds of movies anymore now, like, a, uh, you know, a, a crime drama. They just don't make them. They're making um, superhero movies and, and franchise things. And so the only reason that a movie like that was put into production was its connective tissue to this well-loved brand of the Sopranos series and everything. And, I think David really had it in mind to tell, you know, a whole new story and it was linked to the show but but the studio uh really felt determined to you know to to connect it to the to the show as much as they could in the way it was marketed but I think it was a little unfair to the audiences because they made out that it was this origin story and it really wasn't, it was uh, a character study of of, uh, you know, the, the, the guy I was playing, Dickie Moltisanti.
2: Uh, you know, one of the things we do on the Accutron show is we talk about people who were influenced by something in the 1960s, and you just mentioned uh, a few actors. Is there anyone from that era that you, whenever you're flipping around and and a Brando thing comes on or Seymour uh, Cassell or, like, somebody obscure or somebody mainstream that uh, was an influence to you from from specifically the 60s? Can you think of anybody? from the 60s um someone working at the height of that time let's say paul newman or it could be somebody you know incredibly famous or it Yeah could be- I mean again like it was sort of the the
1: end of that year I mean look obviously everybody acknowledges that brando kind of changed the the way that uh, uh you know changed performance uh, And, and it became something so much more naturalistic and real from that, from that point on. And even, I mean, I've had long conversations with De Niro about this, where uh, he's the first person to say like, look, Brando changed the game. Um, There's, there's no, uh, there's no denying it. Um, So, but then what happened after that was this kind these kind of misfits and antiheroes that, came out of the late sixties and then throughout the seventies culminating to me in raging bull, like that to me, I think is, is the the greatest performance on film ever. And, and arguably the greatest movie ever made. Um,
2: What did it sound like exactly when Robert De Niro told you that? (laughs) (laughs)
1: i'm not gonna i'm not gonna imitate him he's still around i mean (laughs) joe Joe pesci in that movie also like, but he you know no i mean i i I, like um the his generation uh again there was something about the aesthetic of that period too where it was a very messy Uh, aesthetic the way that people looked and behaved and the way that art was it was all like very rough around the edges you know you just had a feeling like people didn't have every hair in place and you know they maybe hadn't like taken a shower that morning or whatever and there was a feeling about the way that movies were made and the way that stories were told and the way the performance was that was that had the kind of spontaneity of of real life and hadn't been kind of um, you know, perfected or, I mean, like now nah, you've literally got like um, uh, people working with computers to, to fix blemishes on, on actors' faces and it, it, it's depressing. Like, um, and, and, and the same goes for the types of, of uh, uh, protagonists in stories at that time. I mean, like, I you know, the other kind of, I guess, role that I would say was the biggest inspiration to me was, was, uh, Jack Nicholson and Cuckoo's Nest. And, um, I mean, this was just, uh, you know, the guy was like balding and his hair's all over the place and he's playing a sort of guy who, who'd, uh, uh, you know, was put away because he like obviously had sex with some underage person. And I mean, it was like, you know, the same thing happened to to Lamada in in Raging Bull. I mean, these are very problematic people and the, the the stories don't um, insist that you judge these characters either as, as heroes or villains and, Um, And just the, the, you know, the the look of the film stock and the way that they're lit, it just all feels like full of the the mess of life. And um, I, 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 you know. I'm not alone in thinking that those that was the sort of golden age, but
3: do you um, feel like a moralism has crept into sort of the writing and the and the directing of these things that these characters We're not allowed to kind of have ambiguous characters with well problematic I mean there's, traits?
1: there's definitely because of of the political landscape now um everything is politicized and so uh you know to me that's the death of art um like to to have to have everything seen through that lens one way or another is just so depressing um i i hope that that kind of somehow like that, that that era comes to an end soon um obviously it's it's tied into the you know the the polarization in the in the politics uh, of this moment in this country but all over the world but but I just think like um for every story to have to be making a statement about something that is uh, you know happening in current events or you know whether or not it's set in the current moment or not is just awful or to not have Uh, to uh, not be allowed
3: to root for a character who you know may have some problematic things in his past but is doing something good now well okay so
1: well rooting for a character or not is a whole different question and and like how you uh how you can render an anti-hero in a way that allows them to you know to do terrible things or to to make mistakes but still have a, a connection to an audience is a fine art in and of itself and that is something totally different than than the question of, of a political statement. I mean, that's to do with, you know, uh the, the skill of the storyteller. And I've shared
4: stage and screen and set with so many icons. Who who remains as a
1: dream collaborator? Well, I look, I don't mean to keep coming back to De Niro. It's like, you know, any actor could could say the same thing, but I've worked with him three times now and um He's had such a like direct influence on me, like just in terms of just my like just imitating things that that he does, not not uh, behaviorally, but just in terms of his preparation. The, the, I think the biggest impact he had on me was uh, how well he learns his lines. And I had uh, I'd grown up kind of being afraid of 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 spending too much time, With the script in that way and learning my lines too well because i i worried that uh i was gonna get into fall into some rote way of saying things and um the first thing i noticed with working with him you know first of all he's like of everybody i've worked with he's the freest actor like the loosest. If you say something different, he's going to respond differently. He is just so, you know, present and spontaneous that it's just, you know, he's, it's, it's always changing often based on what you do. Like he's very reactive that way. And I, I attribute a lot of it to what I, the first thing I noticed about him was just that he had like, he'd known his lines months before we started filming and and in, in rather than having it like force you into some lane of of uh delivery it just like opened everything up because because you're no longer thinking about the words or or trying to remember what you're going to say away all of that kind of tension and you're just you, you just trust that it's there and then you can be complete, you know, you can uh, let that sort of intellectual side of it go and just be there, uh, you know, present and uh, emotionally alive. And, and so that was a big thing. And ever since then, I've just like obsessed over learning my lines. I know you're a,
4: a fluent Italian speaker. Has your Italian heritage fueled um, who you are as an actor?
1: Well, I mean, I hadn't never really imagined that it did up until recently because, I, you know, I, I've never really been cast that way, and, um, uh, I, I, you know, I, I have such a kind of weird mix of background because on my mother's side, like, she's. Her last name's Davis, you know. I mean, um, Virginia Jane Davis, and uh, so, uh, and my dad's Pietro Salvatore Nivola. So I, um, it's a, it's a, <laughs> it's a real. Uh, I'm a mutt that way, and um, it was really over in in the time that I was preparing for the Many Saints of Newark that I started kind of just going back over my personal history that way and and remembering and understanding more about what my dad's experience as the child of an immigrant had been. And, um, and realizing that there were, that there was so much about his experience and his, and, and even down to like physical things and mannerisms and, and just the way he looked at the world that uh, were influenced by that, that fact. and, and then um, you know, yeah. And then on, and then even beyond that, his mother was a German Jew who had grown up in Milan as a teen from a teenager, but she was essentially, a, you know, um, a Holocaust survivor. And I, you know, there's all these. Uh, it's a it's a fascinating story on his side of the family, what they came from, um, and uh, and I've really in recent years spent a lot more time kind of considering all that stuff and. And I do feel, I do feel like it, it's had a big um, impact on me. And I'm, uh, as I said, I'm about to get my third passport. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, congratulations
2: right. on that. Uh, Alessandro Novella. thank you so much for joining us today hey. on the Accutron Show. We will look for your David O. Russell project. Does that have a title? uh the yeah. uh, last i heard it was the untitled david o russell project i don't imagine <laughs> One
1: of those.
3: that that's yeah. going
2: to be on the poster but uh. <laughs> alessandro navola thank you for joining us on the accutron show where we have not just talked about a timepiece we've had a conversation
0: thanks so much you guys really good to talk to you thank you thank you Thank you for listening to the accutron show to listen to all of our shows visit accutronwatch.com to learn more about the world of Accutron, follow us on Instagram at AccutronWatch Watch and subscribe to our podcast from New York City. Until next time, Accutron time.